Hello, hello, and welcome back to what we're calling, and by we, I mean me, um, finish that book. This is episode two, still reading The Rule of Many by Ashley and Leslie Saunders. We are picking up right where we left off yesterday, so let's get into it. Owen, we must have sped through four states by now. It's pathetic, but I couldn't even tell you which. I'm never, I've never thought much about them before. They all start with the letter I, I think. My butt's numb and my brain is mush. We haven't stopped in over six hours and Rayla the Leadfoot hasn't said a word. The woman's a driving machine. It's like she's storing up all her energy and focus for Denver or her bullet wound is slowly sapping all her strength. But this conclusion makes me uncomfortable, and I shift my thoughts elsewhere. There's nothing to look at. It's the same monotonous view mile after never-ending mile, so I dust the cobwebs off my memories from school before my parents and the government pulled me out to work. There was this one teacher I actually liked, who tried to teach us punk kids a catchy, cheesy song to memorize all 51 states in alphabetical order. I was the only student who could do it, and naturally, I thought I was a genius. Let's see if I still am. The tune comes back to me no problem. It's the words that are a bit fuzzy. It takes 51 states to make a country great. 51, we are one, the United States of America. I skip over the hand-holding kid lyrics that are complete bullcrap and hum my way to the main event. Alabama, Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, California, Colorado, Connecticut. Son of a glut. I know there's a D in there somewhere. I rack my brain for five minutes, then give up. Who cares about the state that starts with a D that no one ever remembers? Delaware, Rayla says. I jump in my seat. I guess I was singing out loud. I'm not what you would call a songster, but I'm not completely mortified. Blaze didn't hear. He still passed out in the back seat. That guy sleeps like the dead, which I hope we all aren't soon. Delaware. I sit with the word for a bit, thinking on where exactly the state is on the map. Listen, I'm just a fledgling, but from what I can tell, with Operation Flip the Freakin' Senators, the common wants to unite the states. Rayla doesn't contradict me, so I keep going. That all sounds well and good, but how will they, we, get people from the South or the West Coast to give two craps about people in Delaware? Rayla smiles. It's written in our people's DNA, she explains patiently. We are still the United States. We just have to remind the people of that. When Rayla says it, it seems so simple. We take, we, well, wake the people up. Sleep starts to pull me under, and I try to fight it. I'm not sure why, but it's always felt like the point of weakness to get caught sleeping in public. A baby who needs his nap. Blaze doesn't have a problem with it. He's snoring like one of those bulldogs people used to own. I'm just going to rest my eyes, I tell myself. Next thing I know, I rouse with a start. Chunks of time must have passed. I'm drooling. I pick up the conversation like I never left it. Ava and Mira share DNA. I say the first thing that pops into my mind. It's written in our people's DNA. No response. Did you really not know? I ask Rayla. 
Did you really not know Ava had a twin? She probably won't answer, but I give it a go anyway. People tend to be more open to spilling their guts when they're sleep deprived. No, she says, her smile gone. I learned the truth only days before the world did. But you helped them get to Canada. I continue, sitting up in my seat. I got them to Montana, Rayla corrects me. They got themselves the rest of the way. What are they like? I try not to sound too interested. I shrug. I mean, was it crazy seeing twins for the first time? Rayla grimaces. She plays it off as pain from her wound, but I can tell there's something more there. A deeper pain she doesn't want to show me. I look away, pretending I didn't notice. It's like I saw her naked. I had seen twins before that day. What? There are more? It's impossible for me to downplay my shock. Did you and the common hide another set of twins? No. At first, I think that's all she'll reveal, but she continues. I made a choice I've regretted every second of my days. I make myself look at her while she shares her pain. If only I'd been braver. Rayla finishes, her firm voice breaking. I have no idea what she's talking about. She's the bravest person I've ever met. If you're not brave, then the world word doesn't exist. Taking her eyes off the road, Rayla the Slayer stares at me, raw and unguarded. I suddenly feel very adult. I gave up my daughter. I let the government take my second born. Is she telling me that she had twins? That must have been back in the early decades of the rule of one, back when the main job description of the family planning director was to track down and take care of illegal children. Gluts. My mind is blown. Ava and Mira's mother was a twin. Twins having twins. Not even the deepest pits of the dark web hide any trace of this truth. Rayla doesn't seem to require a response from me, which is good because I'm clueless what to say. I mean, how does someone respond to that? I'm sorry just doesn't seem to cut it. Rather than offer up useless apologies for an evil someone else did, I decide to trade hurts. I didn't get to tell my parents goodbye, I say. I left them in Detroit, and now the guard is probably on them because of what I'm doing. I don't think they'll survive without me. I keep going. It just spills out. My mom and dad don't need me. Only my kismet earnings. They couldn't care less about their actual flesh and blood kid. I'm only worth what I can give them. You know what? I don't think they ever once told me they love me. It's the first time I've admitted this. Rayla nods, telling me she heard me. I feel lighter. Rayla wipes at her eyes with her shoulder. I pretend not to notice. My, my daughter Lynn was a songbird. Her smile's back. So are Ava and Mira. Ava's face flares up in my mind, the image seared there like a photograph I'd like to hear her sing. I hope I didn't say that out loud. Finish your song? Rayla asked me. Sure, clearing my throat. I resumed the cornball tune, really getting into it. Delaware, Florida, Georgia, Hawaii. A few states trip me up, but Rayla helps with the tricky ones. She even joins in, drumming out the rhythm on the wheel. Rayla is pretty good. Awesome, actually. She sounds like she was in a band once. The idea of drumsticks in Rayla's hands rather than a gun is an entertaining one for sure. When the song's done, I start again from the top. I nail it on my second try. All 51 divided territories of the United States. Wake up, Rayla, I shout from the dusty front porch of our Colorado safe house northeast of Denver. Your cavalry has arrived.
what must be 30 cars, all definitely stolen, charged through the wrought iron gate of Legendary Ranch, the tires sending a sandstorm of dirt whipping into the air in their wake. They came. Before we left our hideout in Michigan this morning, Rayla sent out a message, and here they are. A driver at each emergency wheel, the cars glide to a dramatic stop in front of the ranch house. Two perfect rows are on display like it's a private audio auto show with high risers from the distant capital as the backdrop. What an entrance. Rayla jumps to her feet. It took a hell of a lot of insisting, but I finally managed to convince her she needed rest. She drove the entire 14 hours to get us here, and it showed. True to form, she flat out refused to let me take the wheel or to use the autonomous driving system at all, but I felt a sense of honor when she closed her eyes next to me on the porch swing and fell asleep, leaving me to stand lookout alone. She's finally starting to trust me. Why does that matter to me so much? Half the time, I'm still trying to convince myself that I have it in me to become a rebellion member, that I didn't just hitch along for the ride because I had no better offers. Stay on the porch, Rayla says, resting her hand on my shoulder. I think she's using me as support railing to help her stand, but then I feel a tiny squeeze before she lets her hand drop, heading for the stairs. Blaze crops up from the house. He's been in there since we got here, doing whatever it is that Blaze does in his downtime, which is probably just pace around with twitchy fingers. Rayla made him leave all his fancy tech toys behind. Whoa, he says, staring at the fresh reinforcements gathered in front of the house. Yeah, I know, I say, moving to stand beside him at the top of the porch's steps. Six of those cars, the sleek silver and black ones with the electric blue trim, are Kismet models from the auto factory I used to work at. I helped program the autonomous system. Kind of. Okay, I see you, Code Cog. I can't see his face underneath the bandana of flames, but his voice tells me he's impressed. Did we just have our first bonding moment? Who knew that all it took to gain friends was to get yourself caught up in a rebellion? Halfway to the line of cars, I spot several inferior models from rival automotive factories. Rayla stops. Is she in pain? Does she have to catch her breath? No way the veteran leader of the rebellion would want to show any sign of weakness in front of her troops. I should be out there with her, but she told me to stay put. Sorry, not going to happen. The instant I step down the rickety wooden staircase to run to her aid, I abort, realizing my services are not required after all. A muscular, middle-aged man emerges from the winged door of a white luxury sports car, a gun holstered at his waist. He's the most Herculean person I've ever laid eyes on. It's like Rayla ordered him straight out of a favorite childhood virtual game, Warrior King. A hologram lieutenant, just for show. Xavier. Rayla says, her arms open wide in greeting. The man smiles and strides over to her, his hulking arms outstretched, and they embrace. To be more specific, he picks her up into a bear hug, thankfully avoiding her wounded arm, and doesn't let go for an entire 15 seconds. Nope, he's very much real. He places Rayla back on her feet. You had us all worried, my old friend. Going dark after the kismet raid, Xavier says. Are you well and whole? I was relieved when your message came through. How's your son? Rayla asks, skirting his concerns. Troublesome as ever, Xavier says with a grin. Your raid was successful then? Rayla inquires, back to business. We got what we needed? A teenager who looks like a mini version of Xavier exits the passenger seat of the sports car, carrying two huge black duffel bags on his shoulders. He stands beside his father. 
Hello again, Rayla. Rayla nods in greeting. It's good to have you here with us, Malik. She moves to unzip one of the bags. Even from the porch steps, I can see what's inside. Guns. Lots of them. The winged doors of the remaining 29 other cars now swing open, each passenger with their own black duffel bag in tow. We've all been busy, I see, Rayla says, pleased. Very good. She beckons to the freshly arrived common members. There must be at least 50 in total, and turns to face the ranch house. Come inside. There's much to discuss. Blaze and I are in luck. Malik, Xavier's son, is a prodigy in the underground art of tattooing. How he came to discover such an illicit ability, let alone foster those skills, I don't ask. I'm too busy trying to overhear the conversation in the living room. Have you thought of what you want inked yet? Malik questions me again, pausing from his work on Blaze's inner right wrist. One guess what Blaze chose. Yep, flames. I have to hand it to him. The guy really knows how to stay on brand. Malik recognized me right off from all the news outlets transmitting my wanted photo. He called me Rayla's sidekick. He also immediately called me out on my virgin-skinned wrist. You're one of the most famous common members now. You have to be marked, Malik insisted. So he set up shop on a fold-out table in the corner, while Rayla and his father and the other leaders discussed the plan for flipping Colorado Senator to the common side. Seeing their heads together, whispering in hushed voices without me, I feel like I'm stuck at the kids' table. I used to be in the passenger seat, right next to Rayla. Come on, Blaze presses, or are you scared it'll hurt? He turns his flaming smile in my direction. Even in a safe house, surrounded by friends, his bandana remains on. I'm supposed to choose something meaningful for my tattoo, an image or a word that's a symbol of my own resistance, but I don't have anything like that. I haven't even earned the mark of the common yet. I've spent most of my life coasting, not caring about anything, fighting for no one and nothing. What is an emblem for someone who just goes where the wind blows him? A low, constant rumbling sound suddenly reaches me, saving me from having to answer. It gets louder and louder. This can't be good. I rise from my folding chair and look to Rayla across the room. Rayla, do you hear that? I shout. Everybody stops listens, then scrambles outside to the porch, necks craned up to the bright night sky. Oh, crap. Blaze breathes beside me. Oh, crap is right. The dark outlines of massive airplanes, military cargo aircraft cover the sky as far as the eye can see, all flying toward Denver. Night vision binoculars. I hot-foot it to the house, vaulting over the couch. I dive for the trunk I was snooping around in earlier and snatch a pair of beat-up field glasses. Stumbling back out into the yard, I slam the eyepiece to my face and focus. My jaw drops when every plane's cargo bed unleashes paratroopers, military jeeps, tanks, and boxes of equipment, no doubt stuffed with weapons, into the air. It's a full-on invasion. No one says a word. It feels unreal, like we're in a virtual game. Who in the world could this be? Russia? Canada? The planes thunder past our safe house, and I spot my worst fear on the right side of each tail wing. Even without binoculars, I can see the unmistakable flag. Blocks of red, white, and blue, with a five-pointed lone star. This is an inside job. It's the Texas State Guard, I shout over the whirlwind. Impossible, Xavier says, still refusing, refusing to believe what he sees. 
how does Governor Roth have enough biofuel to power such a fleet? If Roth's goal was to display Texas's military might against the common, he succeeded. We don't have a chance in hell. Is Governor Roth trying to occupy Colorado? Blaze asks me, confused. He's already done it, Rayla yells. I can't stop zooming in on the paratroopers. A cluster of them are level with the high-rises now. Another few seconds and their feet will touch the ground. They'll take Denver in no time. What does this mean? How can a governor get away with this? I bet the Texas Guard has already scaled, sealed the borders. We're trapped, aren't we? I ask, ripping my focus off the sky, looking once again to Rayla. Everyone is. An answer, she shoves a gun into my hands. It's the kismet security guards, the same one she took from me the night we made each other's violent acquaintance. We're going to have to fight our way out. Ava, I look like a lady, but I'm not. I've played this game before, dressed up for fancy parties. This time, I have on a white silk one-piece suit with a matching headscarf and act the part of the child of someone important. Smile and be agreeable. I don't know that girl anymore. The makeup on my face is irritating. I know it's necessary for my disguise to blend in, but I keep scratching at it. I reach up once more. Did I really have to wear false eyelashes? But Paul grabs my hand, tucking my arm into his elbow. Paul is my attentive date for the evening. He wears a ritzy tuxedo and looks appropriately dapper enough to be on the guest list of the charity dinner we crashed for the Washington State Heart Association. Heart disease is still Americans, America's number one killer, followed closely by natural disasters and suicide. All the riches, richest Washingtonians are in attendance. And so is Senator Gordon, the guest of honor and our VIP target. Senators don't demand nearly as much security as governors do. It was easy to slip into the event without a microchip scan. Barron, clad in his Washington State Guard dress blues, escorted us in. No questions asked. It's Mira's and my survival tactics from our school days. People see what they expect to see. We look like we belong here, so we belong. Emery stands in front of a great stone clock tower, her elegant gown matching the steeple's rusted red shingles. She's st stunning, and every person at the party sees it too. A swarm of polished men and women buzz around her like honeybees returned from extinction. Emery breaks out a Rubik's Cube from her bag, her shield against having to mingle. She twists and turns the colored blocks, solving the puzzle in under five seconds without even looking at it. Her real focus is on finding the senator. Arm in arm, Paul and I pass by her without acknowledgement, but I can't help but covertly smile at Emery's firm rebuffs. No time for flirtations. She's a woman on a mission. The other two local common members, still dressed in guard uniforms, wait back at the SUV, engine running. The plan is to get Senator Gordon alone, and then for Emery and me to convince him to leave with us on his own free will. If that doesn't happen, we'll move on to the backup plan taking him by force, and convincing him later. As Paul and I stroll past the antique Louvre carousel that's lit up magically in the balmy summer, summer evening, I spot the senator on the back of the Spokane River. He wears a cream tuxedo jacket with black slacks and bow tie, and the first thing I notice is his belly spilling over his matching off-white cummerbund. He's living a comfortable life. That's about to change. Standing alone, where are his agents? The senator has his eyes glued to a tablet screen. 
He mouths words to himself, his free hand slicing through the air with emphasis like he's memorizing something of grave importance. His pre-dinner speech? He takes his non-job that seriously? Ten o'clock, I say under my breath to Paul. We bypass the numerous circular white cloth tables set with elaborate flowered centerpieces and head for the riverbank. Emery moves away from the clock tower, following ten yards behind. It's only when I get closer to the senator I realize how uncomfortable the man looks. He's sweating and fidgety and appears almost as uneasy as I feel in my own suit. I scan the riverbank one more time. Still no agents. The perfect time for us to make our move. We might not get so clear a chance again. I double-check my headscarf, making sure it still conceals my telltale red hair. My look tonight reminds me of an old-school movie star. Glamorous red lips and all. It's the antithesis of who I've become. A girl with a gun strapped to her ankle refusing to take direction from anyone. I squeeze Paul's hand. Action. Aaron, are you seeing this? Paul says softly beside me, calling me by my code name. He slows down and nods behind us at six o'clock. I follow his long line of sight and discover two Washington State guards, real ones, hurriedly setting up camera equipment in front of the small stage that's been constructed between the gardens and the circular tables. Why would a senator's boring charity dinner speech be broadcast to the state's citizens? And why is the guard in charge of the newscast? I've only ever seen them point tasers and guns at people. What is going on? Then, Paul, Emery, and I freeze in unison. An additional half-dozen state guards fan out across the dinner party, guns held aggressively in their hands like they're expecting the dolled-up charity guests to fight back. With what? Their steak knives? I snap my head back around to see two of the guards escort Senator Gordon to the stage, practically at gunpoint. A woman wearing a strapless pale pink ball gown patterned in watercolor floral walks up to the podium on the stage. If the armed guard's sudden presence has thrown her, she doesn't show it. Without further ado, I give you Washington State's own Senator Gordon. She intros to a round of what sounds like forced applause. The dinner guests are taken in taking in the unforeseen development of the guard's appearance like we are, with confusion and wariness. The woman, who must be the director of the charity, is all but shoved off the stage by two agents in dark suits. A heavy, tension-filled silence follows as Senator Gordon is placed in front of the microphone, surrounded on all sides by his two agents and two state guards. Is the man about to make a coerced public confession? Whatever happens, we need to adapt fast. Paul and I close ranks, moving closer to Emery. Only pull out your gun if absolutely necessary, I remind myself. There are cameras now. The nation is watching. Keep to the plan and don't break character. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, Senator Gordon begins in a taut, toneless voice. He speaks directly to the camera, not to the in-person crowd gathered around the tables. What a beautiful night here at Riverfront Park. He pauses as if savoring one last moment of peace. For a second, I don't think he's going to continue. But then the guard on his left takes a threatening step closer. A warning. The senator takes a deep breath and grips the wooden podium. Tight. While I'm here tonight to help raise money for the Washington State Heart Association, a very important cause impacting millions of Washingtonians' lives, Governor Elson, our head of state, has asked me to read a prepared statement. 
which I will now do. In concert, all throughout the dinner party, tablets light up like mechanical fireflies, notifications flickering incessantly. Attention now glued to their screens, most of the dinner guests wear expressions of shock on their blue-lit faces. What the hell is going on? I try to move closer to steal a glance at a tablet, but Emery holds me back. She directs my attention once more to the senator, and I see that Berend has managed to slip his way onto the stage, one body away from our target. He's playing his part of guard perfectly. Our country is under attack by a radical terrorist group, the senator continues, with the governor's prepared statement. State by state, The traitors are attempting to infiltrate the government by turning senators against their own country. They seek to divide us. We cannot let that happen. In direct response, Governor Roth of Texas has declared a state of emergency. Our mission has been exposed. Instead of panic, the only emotion I feel is fury. My instincts held up a red flag of alert after Mira's and my capture at the commons headquarters. Left alone in a cell, my inner voice spoke loud and clear. Someone betrayed us. But I didn't listen. I let myself be persuaded there was no betrayer among our own. And now they betrayed us again. My hands curl into fists. With the approval of Governor Elson, Governor Roth of Texas has taken temporary control of Washington State. The Texas Guard has come not only to our aid, but to the aid of our fellow border states that are in grave crisis during this uncertain hour in our nation's history. Rest assured that you and your first families are being protected. Roth just made a power move I can't even begin to counter. We're too late. Roth has already taken control of the country before he's officially been elected president. My nails dig deep into my palms, a paltry attempt to keep my rage under control. How can I take down a monster whose tendrils just spread to almost half of the northern United States, and in doing so, has grown his power to a size nearly twice that of Texas? You cut out its heart in Dallas. I'm coming for you, Roth, and I want you to know it. I think of the first word of protest I ever heard back in Dallas after a guard arrested a woman over a stolen bottle of water. I stayed quiet then, conditioned into silence, but I won't now. Enough! I shout at the senator. I pull off my, off my silk headscarf and step into plain sight. Gasps from the party guests, from Paul. Senator Gordon suspends his obligatory speech, and every head turns in my direction. Emery steps in front of me, blocking my famous face from view, but the spotlight's already on me. This is my moment. There's no more hiding. Stop being the mouthpiece of the governor and start being the voice of the people, I demand of Senator Gordon. Exclamations of, it's her. It's one of the Gordon Goodwin twins. Arrest her, spread into a chorus of hysteria. I feel a dozen gun barrels pointed at my chest. Baron has his gun out too, but he can't protect me. No one truly can. The murder of my father, my greatest protector, taught me that. The camera aims its eye directly at my exposed face, live for the people to see, for Roth to see. Emery and Paul place their hands on my shoulders to show that they are with me. My vision is focused on the senator, is, but the blurry, at the blurry edges I see bodies moving to stand around me. The people are with me too. 
Shoot her, Roth must be screaming, but the choice isn't his to make. Right now, it's Senator Gordon's. I forced his hand. Arrest me, shoot me, or join with us. The senator stands on the stage, completely still, gripping hold of the podium like a lifeline, indecision clear on his face. His two agents ask him again and again for his orders. One of the state guards breaks rank and charges in my direction, her baton out and ready. Stand down, Senator Gordon shouts into the microphone, his choice of rebellion echoing throughout Riverfront Park and beyond. Those two words trigger a chain reaction. The two agents exchange bullets with the guard now loyal to Roth. Baron grabs the senator and flees with him off the stage, and Emery, Paul, and I are all but carried to our getaway car by those dinner guests who just became rebellion members. When I surged into the back seat of the shiny black state guard SUV, our undercover driver finally understands whom she picked up at the border. Holy crap, you're Ava Goodwin, she says, straightening up her uniform, staring at me wide-eyed from the rearview mirror. I wipe off my red lipstick with the back of my hand. Yes, I am, I say, proud of the fact. Out of breath, Barrand piles into the car along with our target, Senator Gordon, who sits in the front seat. Drive, Barrand shouts. As the car barrels into the night, Senator Gordon switches on the emergency lights and siren, warning everyone to move out of our way. The senator of Washington state has just publicly joined the common side. He has become one of the many. That is it for today. I will talk to you guys tomorrow. <laughs>